Father, we're just grateful that we can gather together as believers in Jesus' name. That we can gather because of what Jesus did. It's because of what Jesus did at the cross that we have this, this gathering. You unify us. You brought us together to hear your word once again tonight. We're grateful, Father, for your word. It's precious. It's life-giving. It offers hope. And I'm grateful, God, for just uh, the brother that you brought us here, Brother Dewey. And I just pray that you would use him as your vessel tonight. Pour out your spirit and speak through him, through your word, Father. And we pray, Father, that as we are in the um, pews and listening, God, you would prick our hearts. Help us to be attentive. Help our hearts to be attentive, Father. Change us, mold us to what you want us to be. Amen. And we just commit this time to you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Blessings. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Well, good evening again. Am I on? I can't tell. I guess I'm on. Can you hear me, Merlin? Can you hear me in the back? We're good. I'm excited about that. I'm excited to be here tonight. I'm excited that you're here. So thank you. Thank you tonight for coming. I want to start tonight by doing something a little bit different. Uh, I'd like to have the children come up tonight. Is that all right with the parents? If the children come up here in the front, we'll have a little children's meeting tonight. The ones you trust to come up here? I'm just kidding. Yeah, if you want to sit on these front benches up here, might need two benches. I'm not sure. Yep, it's going to take two benches. Good. Lots of children, even on a Tuesday night. So I commend the parents of these children for being here on a Tuesday night. Okay. I got a little object lesson tonight. Who can tell me what I have in my hand? Oh, a fishing pole. Hmm. Well, I don't have worms. Well, yes, I do. All right, let me get this off here. What's a fishing pole used for? What do we do with a fishing pole? We catch fish, right? We throw it out there, and hopefully, a, I was afraid of that, it catches the carpet. A fish will grab it and will pull it in. Now, how many of you like to go fishing? How many of you have fishing poles? A lot of you have fishing poles. And your parents take you fishing? Do you catch fish? Yeah. What kind of fish do you catch here in Michigan or Indiana? Bluegale. Bluegale? Do you catch any bass? Yeah. Catch any crappie? Rock bass. Those are fun to catch. Yeah. I haven't been fishing for a long time, actually. But when my children were little, younger, we went fishing quite a bit. Because I like to take them fishing. They like to fish. Anyway, that lure. By the way, what is this? A fish. A lure. A lure, a lure right? Is that the kind of lure you would use to catch a bluegill? No. No? Okay, that's... 
That's what I want to say tonight. We use different kinds of lures to catch different kinds of fish, don't we? So if we want to catch a bass, this is a good topwater bait to catch a bass. I guess that's what they call that. I don't remember. Anyway, you throw it out there, and you hope the bass likes the look of the lure, and he grabs onto it, but does he just get the, the pretty part of the lure? What's he get? The hook. And if he stays on that hook until you pull it in, what's going to happen to that fish? He's going he's gonna to be for supper, isn't he? He's going to die. You're going to pull him in, and you're going to probably knock him on the back of the head, like I do. And then you're going to, if they're still alive, when they're wiggling, and then you clean them, scale them or flay them, whatever you do, and you put them in the frying pan and you eat them. Okay, if, if I didn't use a lure, if I just threw just the hook out there, do you think I'd catch a fish? No. I don't think so either. I've tried it before. Well, I've tried it because some of the fish have ate the worms off the hook, and all I have left is a bare hook, and then they won't bite on it anymore. There we go, loose. Okay, so this might catch a bass. And probably the same thing here. Different kinds of lures. So we use different kinds of lures. We use something like that. That, that might catch a good-sized crappie or a good-sized bluegill, right? They might bite on that, but what's it got in it? A hook. See, we try to hide the hook, right, in something that looks good to the fish, something that looks enticing to the fish. So the fish will grab onto that, but the idea is to get him on the hook so you can reel him in, and he dies, and then we eat it, right? And there's that kind of a lure, and there's this, wow. Pike might bite that, you think? Yeah, there's, that's a good bass lure, too. They like those. And what else we got in here? I guess that's all I have. Oh, here's a, here's a spoon. Bass like those, too, as well as other fish. Something that looks flashy, going through the water. Say, boy, that looks good to eat. But when they grab onto the good part, there's a hook in there, right? The hook of death. The hook of death. If they get on that hook, they're, they're likely not going to get off, right? At least if you're as good a fisherman as some people are. I'm not that good. Well, there's a verse I want to talk about in the Bible real quick. In James 1, verse 13, 14, and 15, it talks about us being tempted. And we're tempted to sin. And if we bite onto the temptation, it says it ends in death. I want to read it to you. In fact, I'm going to read it out of the ESV because it actually uses the term lure. If I can find it here. This is what it says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he he himself tempts no one, that is, with evil. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, brings birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, 
brings forth death. Right? So sin brings forth what? Eventually, if we allow sin in our life and we allow it to keep building and growing, pretty soon it will bring forth, it will result in death. And Satan knows that. Satan knows that. And so what's he do? He puts something out there enticing for us, something that he thinks we might bite on. If, we, if he just said, uh, why don't I just throw you out a hook of death? Do you think you'd bite on it? Whoops. <laughs> Snagged in the carpet again. Yeah. Yeah, you probably would. If he said, here's death. I'll throw this out there. This is death, and, and you'll go to hell if you eat it. Would you do it? Of course not. Of course not. We're smarter than that. But he tries to throw something out there tempting to us, and he's had a lot of experience fishing for men, about 6,000 years, enticing men and women and boys and girls to sin. So he might throw out there something out there, and you might be tempted to tell a little lie. And so you lie, and when you lie, Satan's got you on the hook, right? You, you didn't think it was a, a death sin, but if you let that sin continue to be in your life and grow, if you lie, you have to tell another lie to cover up that lie, and it just continues on and gets bigger and bigger until it brings forth death because that's what sin does in our life. It brings forth death. And separates us from God. So how do you get off the hook if you happen to sin? Good. Exactly. We repent, right? We know we've sinned and we know we're going the wrong direction and we know we're not content inside. We don't have peace inside. And so we ask God to forgive us. And we talked about the saying about the power of the blood of Jesus to cleanse us, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So when we confess our sins, Jesus forgives us, and we're off the hook. We're off the hook, and we're safe in the arms of Jesus. And Satan knows that not everybody is tempted with the same kinds of sin. Somebody might be tempted with greed or envy or lust or... Fear or worry, all kinds of different sins that different people are more likely to be tempted by. And Satan knows kind of what we're tempted by. And so he'll throw a different kind of lure out to different people to try to grab the hook or try to grab that whatever it is that has a hook in it. And he hooks us when we allow that sin to be in our life, right? And if we allow it to continue to be there, pretty soon it builds and it builds and it builds until death. Sin, when it is finished, full grown, brings forth death. So when we're tempted to lie or disobey our parents or what? say bad words or steal something that isn't ours first of all we, we need to know it's wrong 
And if we know it's wrong, we probably won't do it. We shouldn't do it. But sometimes things happen pretty quick, and Satan tempts us to do something, and we, we do it. And then we need to, like you said, we need to ask God to forgive us, right? And ask the person that we offended to forgive us. And then we can be off the hook. Okay, so it's, you remember when you go fishing that that's kind of the way Satan tempts us. He puts a different lure on to tempt us and he throws it out there because he doesn't want to just throw death out there because he knows he won't catch us on that. We're not that, we're not that gullible or that naive. So he puts something tempting on there that we want. And then when we grab it, he hooks us. And the only way to get off the hook is to ask Jesus to forgive us and to cleanse us with his blood. Okay? Okay, let's say a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for these children tonight. And Lord, I know uh, they have parents that love them, and you love them so much, God. And I thank you that they're here in church to learn about you. And I pray, God, that you would just bless them and protect them, Lord, from Satan's temptations, from the lures that he would throw out to entice them in their life. God, just put a hedge of protection about them, and we just pray the blood of Jesus over them. Lord, and thank you so much for uh, your love for them, and I just pray that they grow up to love you and to serve you, to surrender their hearts and lives to you. Jesus, I pray in your precious name, Jesus, amen. Okay, tonight, tomorrow night, I want to do another object lesson, and with that, tell my testimony, okay? Share my life testimony, okay? So you come back tomorrow night, and we'll have another children's meeting, okay? Okay, you can go back to your seats. <clears throat> fish, fish hooks and carpet don't go together. All right, I invite you tonight to go to Philippians chapter 3. I love the book of Philippians, and this is, well, they're all good chapters, but this is good stuff. Philippians chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first 15 verses, I think. I may stop there. Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. Finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching right, the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count, count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this, even this unto you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we're grateful tonight just for your presence here among us, Lord. You said where two or three are gathered in your name, which we are, that you would be right here in our midst. We thank you for the privilege, God, of looking in to your word that is truth. Sanctify us through thy truth tonight, Lord. Your word is truth. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that we may be mature and fully furnished to all good works. And so I thank you for that, Father. Thank you for the promise that your word will not return void. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that helps us to rightly divide the truth and to apply it, Lord, to our hearts and lives so that we can be doers and not hearers only of the word. And so I thank you tonight, Father. Thank you that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So, the message I want to share with you tonight, I have titled, The Slippery Slope of Satisfaction. And I don't know who this message is for tonight. It might not be for anybody except me. I know the message is for me. So I'm right with you tonight. Uh, this, uh, it's a warning, it's a challenge, not only obviously to you, but it's something that God can, continues to challenge me about and convict me about and prick my heart about because it's always a temptation to put a lid on a relationship with God, to be satisfied with where we're at, to plateau in our Christian life and says, kind of say, you know what, I, I'm comfortable right here, I like it where I'm at, and this is good enough, I don't need to go any further. And, you know, that's, that is a dangerous mindset to have 
It really is. I mean, we're going we're gonna to plateau and we're going to kick it into neutral and we're just good enough where we're at. But what happens when you're climbing and you kick it into neutral and you're coasting or you're paddling upstream and you cease to paddle, what happens? You begin to go backwards, right? You begin to go backwards. You're not going forwards anymore. You're not gaining ground anymore. And in this sense, we're not drawing closer to Jesus anymore. We're not going deeper in our relationship with Jesus and our knowledge of Jesus and our understanding of his love for us. We're just content right where we're at. And it's okay. I like it here. That's a dangerous place to be. Not only because we begin to slip back in our relationship with the Lord, but it's dangerous because... It's an area where Satan can attack us and plan his schemes and temptations against us. Again, I talked about David last night, but I think about David again. David was a man after God's own heart, and that's a good thing. He sought after God's heart, but 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins saying that it was the time of year when kings went forth to battle. And so Israel, Joab, and all Israel army and the ark went off to battle, to do the Lord's battle. And they wiped out the Ammonites and they besieged the city of Rabbah. But it says that David, at least the King James Version says, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. He tarried still at Jerusalem. Now, why did he stay at Jerusalem instead of going with the Lord's army to fight the Lord's battle, which he was really in charge of? But he sent Joab, his general, or whatever you call him, to fight the battle without the king. Why did David stay home? Why did he hang back in Jerusalem? Why did he tarry still? We're really not told. But we might surmise that maybe David said like, oh, ho-hum. You know, I've fought many of these battles before. I've killed my 10,000s and everybody knows that. It's like, they can probably handle this one without me. Uh, yeah. I, I'm just good to stay home this time. And once Satan had David still and tearing in Jerusalem, we know, the, we know the rest of the story, right? He blew him away with Bathsheba. Satisfaction, tearing still instead of moving ahead with God is a slippery, dangerous slope. And I think it's obvious in our text today that Paul was anything but satisfied with his relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul was like that song that we sang, uh, the first song that you sang, the first verse. I can't even think what it was now. But I, want, I, I liked for you to sing it in closing, whatever it was. The first verse of that song. You remember what it was, Eric? Lord, I am fondly, earnestly longing into thy holy likeness to grow, thirsting for more and deeper communion. 
yearning thy love. For more. That, that's Paul. He was yearning and yearning for more of Jesus. Never satisfied with where he was at. And you see that all through, uh, he, you know, all through these verses here. He had that unquenchable thirst, that insatiable hunger to go deeper and closer in his relationship with Christ. And he says in verse 15, he said, if we're perfect, meaning us mature believers, we should be thus minded. We should have the same mind where, where we're not satisfied where we're at ever. We don't ever plateau, but we want to go higher. We want to go deeper. We want to come more, press more into Jesus to know more and more of him, to be made like him. And so I believe we can draw some insights from what Paul writes here, from his own testimony, to help us so we avoid the slippery slope of satisfaction. And so I've got four points tonight. And the first one is, if we want to avoid that slippery slope of satisfaction, make Christ our goal and not others. Make Christ our goal and not others. Paul made Christ or Christ's likeness his goal. It's all through verses 7 to 10. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss. Why? For Christ. Verse 8, I count all things loss. Why, Paul? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I do count them but dung. And again, we ask why, that I may win Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. You know, if we make others our mark of excellency and we strive to be like others, pretty soon we come to the point where, you know what? I'm good enough. I mean, there's quite a few people that aren't up here at the level I am, and so I'm just going to level off and be satisfied with where I'm at because I'm better than so-and-so or higher, deeper, more knowledge than somebody else in the church. And Paul had this to say about that in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 2. But they measuring th themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. So it's not wise to make others our goal. But if we make Christ our goal, then we can never reach the goal. We have to keep going higher and deeper and pressing in to become more like Christ. We would have to exclaim like Paul in verses 12 and 13, not as though I had already attained or were perfect, I count not myself to, to have apprehended. In other words, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. I've got a ways to go, a long ways. And so I can never stop growing or maturing in Christ. I have a long way to go. So make Christ our goal and not others. I was thinking about Job. God said Job was perfect, upright, turned away from evil, and, and feared God. And Job was dialoguing with his buddies there. They weren't really good friends, turned out. But Job seemed to have a pretty high opinion of himself. And comparing to his friends, you know, he, he felt 
pretty smug about where he was at with God. And so, you know, you can't prove that I deserve the calamities that have come upon me. In fact, he, oh, if I could only ask God why this is happening, because I haven't done anything to deserve it. I'm pretty, pretty good in my relationship. I agree with God. I'm perfect, upright, turn from evil, and fear God. But then he caught a glimpse of God in, in those last chapters. And when he caught a glimpse of God, he said, <laughs> he, he, Behold, I am vile. I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I've heard of you, now I've seen you. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job realized how far he had to go yet to become like God in his holiness and his power in creating everything that he created. The point is, if I make Christ my goal instead of others, I will never be satisfied. Now, I realize Paul did say in verse 17... He said, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them that walk so as they have, as ye have us for an example. And so was Paul saying, follow me? Make me your example? I don't think he was. I know in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he begins, follow me as I follow Christ. And I think we could all say that because we do look up to other people and we do want to follow their good examples. And there's characters in the Bible I want to be like. We talked about Daniel today. I would like to be like Daniel because Daniel, they couldn't find anything wrong in him. And other people in the Bible we would like to be like. Follow me as I follow Christ. I've told people that. But when I leave off following Christ, then don't follow me anymore. Follow Christ. So there's people in the church that we look up to. I know a number of people in our church I look up to. And yes, I want to follow their example. But not to the point where I look to them instead of trying to attain Christ. So look to Christ, not men. Number two, forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. Verse 13, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto the things which are before. So Paul says, forget about the stuff that's back there and let's go forward in our relationship with Christ. Don't look back. Look this way. And I don't think Paul was just talking about his boast there in in the first few verses. No. No. He counted that dung and rubbish. He was willing to give that up. So I don't think he was just talking about the bad things that were in his life, the things that he was depending on before he come to know Christ. I think also included here are our past victories, our past accomplishes, accomplishments. We can't just focus on the things that we've done in the past that were good. We even have to leave those things behind. And press forward in our relationship with Christ. Our tendency is to camp out on past mountaintop experiences. To build ourselves trophy cases. To house all our good accomplishments for God. Like 
you know, I could boast. Back when, when I surrendered to Jesus, first thing I did was go into voluntary service and serve the Lord in Mississippi, ministering to the Choctaw Indians. Wow, how about that? And then after that, you know, I was willing to leave home, leave family, leave our church, leave possessions and friends, and go to Oklahoma, where God called me to minister. What do you think about that? That's quite an accomplishment, don't you? I mean, that's following Scripture. That's what Peter said they did. They left houses and lands and so forth to follow Jesus. So that's pretty good. I mean, I could boast about the number of people we've led to the Lord and the number of people we've baptized, which I've heard people do before. But you know, when Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, began to talk about his accomplishments and what he went through to serve Jesus, and there was a whole list of things. There was the shipwrecks, and there was the fastings, and there was hunger, there, there was fighting with beasts, uh, there a whole number of things that Paul did and accomplished in his past in serving Christ, and he said, I speak as a fool <laughs> in talking about these things. And again, I think about David. You know, David defeated Goliath. Wow, that was really good. He defeated Goliath. He killed him, and he cut off his head with a sword. And then he took the head. And he took it back to Jerusalem with him. And even when Abner introduced David to King Saul, he was still packing around the head of Goliath. Now I'm just saying, you can't accomplish much for the Lord when you're packing around a giant's head. You're not going to get much done for Jesus. So even the good things that we've done, those things can distract us from what God has for us to do in the future that he wants us to press into, that he wants us to obey his will and go after and continue on for the Lord Jesus. Forget what is behind and look forward to what is ahead. I think about what, you know, I read through the Bible every year, and I come to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 3. And there's the children of Israel going around and around Mount Seir. It says many days. Actually, I believe it was about 38 years. They continued to go around the mountains of Seir. Around and around and around they went. And finally, God said, go north. Move you northward. Stop circling this mountain and move forth. Go northward. And I have to think, what am I circling in my life? Instead of moving forward with the Lord. Am I just going round and around the same plateau that I've accomplished Instead of trying to go higher, trying to go further with the Lord. God said, it's time for you to quit circling that mountain and go northward. Move north. Turn you northward. 
Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I think God has so much to show us, to reveal of himself to us, to me. So much for us to experience. But if we keep focusing on the past, we're not going to experience it. We're not going to move forward. Forget what lies behind. God wants to give us new revelations and knowledge and grace and then number three, just simply press forward. Press forward. Verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize. None of us have reached that prize yet. None of us have reached the mark. So none of us have the luxury to sit back and become spiritually satisfied with where we're at. We must continually press toward the mark to obtain the price. The Greek word translated press. I look these up in the Strong's Concordance. I don't know Greek. And it's pronounced something like dioko. And it means to pursue. To be given to a cause. But the, the entire definition, according to Strong, says pursue through persecution. Given to suffer persecution. And the mental picture I get there is that our spiritual journey, as long as we get nearer the mark and closer to the prize, just keeps getting more difficult. It doesn't get easier towards the end. They say the hardest part of climbing a mountain is the last number of hundred feet before you reach the summit. And I happen to know that the most grueling part of a marathon is about mile 23, 24, and 25 before you can see the finish line because you think you're never going to see it. The hardest part of the race is the end. And I think that's true also as we press, press towards the mark to obtain the prize of the high calling. It doesn't necessarily get easier. And I know we think, I think, well, when I get to be a senior saint in the church, this isn't going to be as hard anymore. It's going to get easier. I got a question for the senior saints. I mean, I know you don't want to call yourself a senior saint. Does it get any easier? Anybody, can, can you raise your hand? Does it get easier? I have talked to, in my 32 years of ministry, just a lot of 80, 85, 90-year-old senior saints at our church, and they assure me that it never gets easier. There are always trials and heartaches and ad adversities and things that you come up against as you're trying to go to the mark to obtain the prize. It doesn't get easier. It doesn't get easier. We have to press through. And I, I really believe, brothers and sisters, that, that until we've reached the goal, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. We're going to have to just rely more and more on Jesus. And, and that's why 
you know, to me, if anybody's got an excuse not to be in church, it's the senior saints, right? They're tired. <laughs> it's not easy when you get as old as me to get ready for church. and come. It's much easier to stay home. But who's in church? At our church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you can count on the senior saints being there. They'll make every effort to be there because they know they need to press in, to come closer to Jesus, to learn more about him if they're going to finish the race. You've got to fight the good fight until the very end. And that's what Paul said. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. And I think he fought that right to the very end. I've finished my course. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And not me only, but to everyone that loves his appearing. And so we must continue to press on. Just knowing that the Lord is our helper. As we run the Christian life the race of the Christian life. It doesn't get easier. It's probably going to get harder. It's probably going to get harder the more we run the race. But the joy of that is we do have experience and we have testimony and we've, we've had, we've known that when we've gone through hard times and we've come out on the other side victorious that we did that by relying on Jesus Christ and God's power in our life. We could not have done it ourselves. So we know that we have to keep pressing in to Jesus. We can never be satisfied with where we're at. Or we will not make it to the end. We will not make it to the end. Marathoners come to the point where they call it, they hit the wall, right? And 20, 20 miles, it, 21 miles it or so, they hit a wall. That's just as far as they can go. I don't know if they didn't train enough or what, but it happens. And I think if we get lackadaisical in our relationship with Jesus and we just say, you know what, it's good enough, pretty soon we're going to hit a wall and maybe give up because it's too hard. It's too hard. Press forward. Lean into the opposition. Boldly say that the Lord is your helper and go for it. And then finally, number four. When we're tempted to be satisfied with where we are with God, with where we are in our level of spiritual maturity, just know that God is not satisfied with where you are. He may be happy with where you are, but he is not satisfied with where you are. God knows that he wants more of you, and you need more of him. Don't ever think that God is satisfied with where you are in your relationship with him. He wants you to go deeper, higher. I'm losing touch here. But over and over again, the Bible says grow. We need to grow. Grow, grow. Romans 8, 29 says he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. I don't know. If I ask for hands again, is anybody conformed to the image of his son yet? <laughs> I'm not. I've got a long way to go. 
So I know God isn't satisfied with where I'm at yet. He's conforming me to the image of his son. And so every spiritual ledge we climb, God says, don't stop, go higher. We get to the next level, God says, don't stop, go higher. There's more. I want to reveal more of myself to you. I want you to grow closer to me. John 15. Well, in fact, turn there, if you would, in closing. John chapter 15. These verses declare that God is not satisfied with where we're at in our relationship with him. In our experience with him, in, in bearing fruit for him. And I missed this for a long time because I memorized this chapter a long time ago. And this is one of my favorite chapters. When I go out running in the morning, I almost always go through John chapter 15 because it, it just warns me, reminds me of so many things in my relationship with Jesus. I love this chapter. But I, I, I would go over this and I would just miss it time and time again until one time it just, there it is. God is not satisfied with where I'm at. And I also use this portion of scripture when I'm talking about sufferings that we go through, trials that we face, adversities that we come up against in life. Why does that happen? Is God mad at me? Does God not care? Is God warning me? Is God trying to tell me something? Am I missing something? That's why this trial, is there sin in my life? Is that why I'm facing this trial? This verse answers that question. I mean, that may be the case, but most likely it's not. And God says, or Jesus said in verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman, or my father is the gardener. He says, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. He cuts it off. But every branch that bears fruit, what's he do? He purges it. He prunes it. Why? So it may bring forth more fruit. You see, God isn't necessarily, he likes the fruit that we're bearing, but he knows we can bear more fruit. And, and I, I tell people, you know what? If you're going through a trial, some kind of adversity in your life, a hardship that, that God has allowed into your life, you can count that as a compliment from God. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. God inspects your vine, your branch, I mean. Jesus is a vine. He expects your inspects your branches. Wow, look at that fruit. I am so impressed. I love that fruit. So what's he do? He prunes you back. He allows a trial, an adversity, some suffering in your life. Why? To get rid of all the fluff and bring you right back to Jesus, to the vine, where he knows you're going to bear more fruit and better fruit for the kingdom. 
So God is not satisfied with where we're at in our relationship with him because he knows we can, we can draw closer to Jesus, we can come in closer to Jesus, and we can bear more fruit. God is not satisfied with where we're at. He knows we can do more through Jesus. In verse 5, Jesus said, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. Why? But it, then he says, without me, you can do nothing. So God prunes us back where we are closer to Jesus and more connected to Jesus and relying totally upon him and receiving strength from him. And we bring forth more fruit. So the challenge is to be on guard for the slippery slope of satisfaction. Make Christ our goal, not others. Make sure Christ himself is the one that you're looking to. Even though we look to others and follow their good examples, Christ is the one, he's our goal. Forget what lies behind, even the good stuff. Reach forward to what lies ahead, what God has in store for us. Press forward. Press towards the mark the prize to obtain it plan on going through hard times to get there and then number four know that God isn't satisfied with where you are spiritually and I pray that somehow this is spoken to somebody tonight about your relationship with Jesus God is not satisfied there's more for us all of us I know there's more for me and I want to go after it. I don't want to get satisfied. But it's, it's a temptation. I'm telling you it is a temptation. In my life, it's a temptation. Just to say, man, I like where I'm at. It's good enough. But it's not. So can we sing in closing as we stand that first verse of that song? And just sing it from your hearts. <laughs>